All right, we're going to be jumping into 1 Corinthians, series we've been in, countercultural, seeing how the church in Corinth was challenged to be different from the world around them, just as we as a church are challenged to be different from the world around us today. Um, if you've missed some of the messages, they're available online, so I'd encourage you to, um, to go back and to review them so that you can be kind of tracking along with us um, throughout, throughout the letter. Um, today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, so I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible, to go ahead and open to that passage, and the scriptures will be on the screen as well as we read them. As I said, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, verses 2 through 16. This is a somewhat difficult passage, so I'll just go ahead and warn you, but it is God's Word, and it has many, many good things for us um, that I've been encouraged uh, about as I've been studying the Word. So, um, please follow along with me as I, as I read. Starting in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman. But woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all these things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word and for its authority. We're thankful for it how it reveals who you are. Sometimes we come to your word um, in, in other ways or from other viewpoints, Lord, but first and foremost, we acknowledge that it reveals who you are and what you desire for us. Secondarily, as, as a result of, of who you are and how you redeem. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to it this morning, that you would Change us from it, Lord, and through it um, for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our backyard at my house, we have a very large rose bush. Every year it produces beautiful flowers that we enjoy. But as most rose bushes do, it has thorns. If you desire to enjoy the beauty of the roses, you first have to navigate the thorns. 
have to navigate the thorns as I mow around the rose bush. And if we want to cut one and bring it inside to enjoy again, we have to navigate the thorns. Our passage today is a bit like that. It beautifully expresses the glory of the gospel, but it is not the most easy to navigate. But as we handle it carefully today, by God's grace, we will enjoy its beauty and glory. The beauty and glory that we will see today is the beauty and glory of the Trinity. A beauty and glory that is diverse, yet of perfect unity. When we zoom out on creation, we see an even greater diversity than that within the rose. But we still see unity as well. There is beauty and glory in creation because of unity amidst diversity. What if all of creation, for instance, was a flat, treeless plain? How beautiful would that be? Just think about Illinois. No offense to anyone who loves Illinois, but it's not the most beautiful state, right? The beauty of creation comes through its diversity. There are mountains and valleys. There are grasslands, deserts, and forests. There is scorching heat and bitter cold. There are animals of which we are terrified and animals we want to cuddle with. There is diversity in creation. But amidst the diversity, there is unity. An order characterized by unity amidst diversity extends to human beings as well. There is perfect unity amidst diversity in the Trinity. As we are made in God's image, the image of the Trinity. Before sin entered the world, there was perfect order in the world. There was diversity, yet perfect unity, no disorder. Mankind was perfectly ordered before the fall as well. Before sin entered the world, mankind was perfectly content as created. Adam was content to fulfill the duties assigned to him by God with Eve's help to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion and rule as image-bearing worshipers. Eve was content to be Adam's helpmate in those things for which man was created. After the fall, the created order was completely disturbed. Perfect order became disorder. Diversity no longer came to be appreciated, but scorned. Though gender roles and gender distinction were part of the perfect creation, the roles and distinction of gender became disordered. There's no longer unity, there was no longer unity between Adam and Eve, but discord. Rather than appreciate the diversity of the good roles God had given them, Adam and now men have a tendency toward passivity rather than courageous leadership. Man's mantle of leadership has come to be characterized often by either sinful aggression or absent passivity or an odd mix of the two. Rather than being content as Adam's helpmate as created, Eve's tendency became manipulation and usurpation. Genesis 3.16 points to this, saying, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Eve came to have a sinful desire to oppose Adam and rule over him. All creation has become subjected to futility and disorder, including gender roles and distinctions. In sin, we reject God's created order, which is a unity amidst diversity, and we contribute towards increased disorder. Since the fall, apart from the work of Christ, we are disordered individuals amidst a disordered creation, and this is especially evident with regard to gender. 
But in the gospel, which is making all things new, the creator is restoring a unity amidst diversity. From the devastation and hideousness of disorder, he is restoring his creation. We're being made new. Creation is being made new. In our passage today, Paul is describing how to live out this newness, bringing order to the chaos of gender in the specific context of the Corinthian church. Most narrowly, looking only at our passage, we might miss some of the conclusions that we'll be led to today. But all Scripture must be interpreted in light of the whole of Scripture. And the whole of Scripture is, again, primarily a revealing, a revelation of who God is. Instead of primarily being about us or a love letter to us, it primarily displays the glory of the Trinity, which is most powerfully and which is most powerfully and perfectly displayed through the person and work of Christ. So it is with the backdrop that Paul writes to the Corinthians about gender in the context of gathered worship. In our passage today, we'll see that our Trinitarian God, which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one in three, three in one, brings restoration, order, and glory. And he does that through biblical authority and submission, Timeless truth, culturally applied, and embracing gender distinctions. As the people of God do these things, we more accurately reflect God's image, the image of the Trinity, a perfect unity amidst diversity. So again, the first thing that we see in our passage is that our Trinitarian God is bringing restoration, order, and glory through the biblical exercise of authority and submission. Chapters 11 through 14 of 1 Corinthians. So, so we've been kind of journeying through 1 Corinthians. We've now entered in kind of a new section, if you will, of the book. And that's chapters 11 through 14. And in this section, um, the, the broadest context is how the Corinthian church should be ordered in worship when they come together. So this passage today, as well as the ones that follow on the Lord's Supper, love, and the spiritual gifts, they all have to do with um, how they were supposed to be an act when gathered in worship. The culture of Wisconsin is still one in which the majority of people, even if not believers, are, for, are familiar with the idea of corporate worship. We have an idea of what coming together to worship is supposed to look like. Corinth was probably not like that. Corinth was known to be the most licentious city in the ancient world. But a city in which God had called a people and was forming that people to be his temple for his presence. Paul first commends the Corinthians because of how they've had the, the tradition or teaching that he left them with, but he says, the next thing he says is, but, but they need some correction and continued guidance, which is why he says in verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Paul will get to how authority and submission plays itself out when they are gathered together, but he first, but first he wants them to understand authority and submission a little bit more generally. Of crucial importance is the meaning in this passage of the word head, which is kephale in Greek. There has been a lot of ink spilled about the meaning of this word, especially in most recent times. Some have argued that the word means source, denying any sense of authority. But this is actually not consistent with biblical usage, nor the usage in classical literature 
or in the early church fathers. Sometimes it's helpful to use literature from the ancient world outside of the Bible to help determine a word's meaning. In over 50 examples of the expression, person A is the head of persons B, that have been found in ancient Greek literature, person A has authority over persons B in every case. So indeed, this word is best understood, head or kephale, as metaphorically meaning authority. That's how it's best understood. So even in verse 3, as we look, um, we see that the head of every man is Christ. So Christ is our authority. The head of, of a wife is her husband. The husband is her authority. The head of Christ is God. God is Christ's authority. Now, of course, the word authority is in many ways a bad word in our culture. I think most of us are probably aware of that. And this is because of the way sinful men, men and women, have exercised authority throughout history, but probably particularly men, in a self-centered and abusive way. But we know that God has all authority in heaven and on earth, and his exercise of authority is pure and holy in every way. So there's nothing inherent to authority that should be negative. Rather, it is how that authority is exercised. As we know from Ephesians 5, which also says in that passage that the husband is head of the wife, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The Christ-like headship and authority of the man in marriage is to be loving and self-sacrificial, always exercise out of best interest for the wife. This is a tall, tall order. All husbands, myself included, desperately need the help of God's Spirit to be the loving, caring, selfless, active authority that we are called to be in marriage. So any resentment a wife might have toward her husband or that our culture might have towards male headship is not because of what the Bible says about authority and headship, since Jesus, perfect in every way, is the pattern for male headship. Instead, any resentment would be because the husband or maybe the father hasn't lived out authority like Jesus. Unfortunately, at times, what our culture has thought of as biblical, quote, biblical male headship has had a bad reputation. That's because people in the church haven't exercised it in a way that glorifies God. Men have not done that at times. But where it has had a a bad reputation within the culture, that's only the case because it hasn't been biblical enough. If it was really sufficiently biblical, if it was modeled after the pattern of Christ, there'd be no reason for it to have a bad reputation. So improper use of something does not negate its rightful use. Authority can be an instrument of life or an instrument of death. One man I know has a great gift of encouragement. He uses this gift from his position of authority to bring life to all those around him. But I've, I've seen it in a particular way towards women who have been under his headship. And these women have abounded with fruitfulness and they have flourished. To be under authority is not a thing to be embittered toward, For Christ himself is under the authority of the Father, as it says in verse 3. The head of Christ is God. Although God the Son and God the Father are are equal in deity and attributes, the Father is head over the Son in terms of a role of leadership or authority. In a similar way, though men and women are equal in dignity and worth, God has given different roles, one of authority and one of submission. 
And of course, whether husband or wife, we're all under the authority of Christ. And we'll be held accountable for how we have functioned in the role that God has assigned to us. The fact that Jesus had all authority, says that explicitly in Matthew 28, 18, implies submission. If there are to be people in authority, there have to be people in submission, or else there would be no such thing as authority. That's just logic. Narrowly, our passage is instructive for roles in marriage. So I ask, men, do you exercise your authority in a Christ-like way, being proactive rather than passive, with gentleness, not harshness or anger, with selflessness, not selfishness, with courage, not fear? It's tough. I know that I'm not where I want to be in all those categories, especially at all times. Our leadership should cause those under us, especially in our family, to be fruitful and to flourish. So men, let's continue to fix our eyes on Jesus and be strengthened daily by his grace through his spirit. Ladies, um, though Jesus is obviously male, his person and work provide the outline and goal for your role in marriage. Though equal to the Father, Jesus submitted joyfully. Philippians 2.7 says he emptied himself taking the form of a servant. In Luke twenty two forty two, he prayed before going to the cross. He prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that it was for the joy set before him that he went to the cross. So women, do you encourage and empower your husband's leadership? Even if his leadership, as it often will, lacks much to be desired, he's still been given the office. He will he will likely grow much more in his leadership through your encouragement than through your criticism. Both genders need to recognize that the role of the other is incredibly difficult and extend grace and encouragement toward one another. Gender roles of authority and submission are not a part of the fall, but are patterned after God himself. They're present within the Trinity And they're given to us for our good and God's glory that we would bear God's image, the image of the Trinity, as we were created to do. Of course, principles of submission and authority have a much broader application as well. All people are called to be under authority and submission in various ways. If we can't submit to the earthly authorities God has established, whether that be in the family or in the church or civil authorities, how, how will we submit to God's authority? Kids and youth in the room, this is something especially applicable to you. Being under um, authority and submitting might feel like the last thing that you want to do right now. I, I was a kid once. I was a youth once. I understand that. But it's for your good. God is making you more like Jesus through it. This passage has application for adult singles as well, whether never married or widowed or whatever the situation may be. Though not in marriage, singles are also called to live out principles of biblical authority and submission in various other ways throughout their lives. So submission and authority, they aren't curses, but a biblical, beautiful, glorious expression of the Trinity. As we function in authority and submission biblically, Particularly in marriage, we image God in the world, and the triune God is bringing restoration, order, and glory. 
Now that we've so briefly examined authority and submission, we now ask, how are these to be played out in the church when gathered for worship, particularly in Corinth? Notice that the issue of whether women can pray or prophesy is not debated. It's a given that they can, but how should she do it and how is man to do it? And this leads to our next point, is that our Trinitarian God brings restoration, order, and glory when timeless truth is culturally applied. So we are called to take timeless truth and culturally apply it in appropriate ways. Back to the passage, 1 Corinthians eleven four through 6 says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, then let her, then let her cover her head. This entire passage presents interpretive difficulties. It's thorny, as I've mentioned. On the one hand, if taken completely literally, it would mean it would lead to women wearing head coverings in worship. Some have done that and even continue to do that. Obviously, women of this church do not do that. So are we in error? Others have basically thrown out passages like this altogether, saying that they're only cultural and have absolutely no application to today. Is this true? Actually, neither approach is right. Um, Truth does not change, but must be applied to each specific culture and time. And that is what is happening here in this passage. And we have to understand that in order to understand the passage and then apply it today. Uh, Faithful biblical interpretation is possible, but sometimes it's not easy. And this is one of those passages where it's not the easiest or maybe the most straightforward Um, With the rise of liberalism in the early 20th century, a defense against liberalism was to take everything completely 100% literally from Scripture. But that also leads to some misinterpretation because there are clearly some passages in the Bible not meant to be taken completely literally. And this is one passage, not in terms of the truth, the principle, but in terms of the application that Paul makes from the passage. Paul is driving at the proper way for men and women in Corinth to accurately live out biblical principles according to their time and culture. The timeless biblical principle for them was the same as it is for us, the headship of husbands and the submission of wives. But the cultural expression of that was then unique to their time and place. In the first century Roman world, a woman's head covering was a sign of marriage. So by prophesying or praying with head uncovered, It signified either that a woman was unmarried or married but casting off the sign of marriage and the authority that accompanied it. Uh, One commentator wrote that the, the woman's hair arrangement made a statement about a woman's relationship with her husband. And it's not actually 100% clear in this passage whether when it's talking about women's head being covered, it's referring to like a physical head covering, like a, a veil or something of that nature, or to have their hair up. Um, it's a little bit unclear, but, but either way, um, it was making a statement about a woman's relationship with her husband. And part of what could be in view here is some confusion from the Corinthians about the age in which we live. 
Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty that in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Since Jesus had already risen and his spirit had been poured out, they may have thought in some way that they were in the age of the resurrection, therefore no longer under marital submission. But of course, that was not the case. Though they and we experience many of the first fruits of the resurrection, the age of the resurrection has not yet come. That will come when Jesus returns in fullness and judges the world. But what about men in this passage? Verse 4 tells us that every man who prays with his head covered dishonors his head. Verse 7 says that for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. Genesis 2 helps us to understand this. Adam, as we read earlier in the, um, in the service, Adam was formed by God from the dust and breathed life into his nostrils. Genesis 2, 7. We didn't read that verse, but we saw that he was formed first and Eve came later. As Adam bore the image of God, he also displayed the glory of God. Upon first hearing, it might seem that, that the phrase, woman is the glory of man, devalues women. But I, I don't think that this is the case. Eve was made from Adam for Adam, and being made for Adam, she brings him abundant joy. Before Eve, no helper was found suitable for Adam. After she was created, he is no longer lonely. In fact, Adam sung when he saw her. Genesis 2, 23 says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. When Adam says, at last, upon meeting Eve, it brings to mind the song, the R&B soul song from the 60s, At Last, by Etta James. I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with it. It's a great song, but it begins, at last. And it says this, he says, at last, I'm not going to sing it for you, sorry. You can get it on the radio or wherever after we go, but at last my love has come along. My lonely days are over and life is like a song. Oh, yeah. At last the skies above are blue. My heart was wrapped up clover the night. I looked at you. I found a dream that I could speak to, a dream that I can call my own. I found a thrill to press my cheek to, a thrill I've never known. You smiled. You smiled, oh. Then the spell was cast. And here we are in heaven, for you are mine at last. The joy of Adam's encounter with Eve is an unspeakable joy. An unspeakable joy, not only of loneliness gone, but intimacy consummated by complete oneness. She is the glory of man, not because she is of any lesser value, but because of the order of creation and because she brings man so much joy. Additionally, since she was made from man, and because she's obviously way more pleasant to look at, she shows the excellence of man since she came from man. That she is the glory of man is basically another way of saying that God saved the best for last. She is the crown of creation. Amen. That woman was created for man leads Paul to naturally conclude that she must have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Wait, what? <laughs> no, there's an explanation for this, but the way it's in Scripture, it's like, what? Um, why, so why should a woman have a symbol of authority on her head 
Um, what does that have to do with the angels? Angels are God's messengers, and Psalm 138.1 alludes to them being present with God's people in worship. Isn't that an awesome thought? Angels being, God's pre- God, being with God's people in worship. They're both, um, angels are both in the throne room of God and observing worship on earth as well. Angels are involved in what is going on with God's people. Greg Lanier comments this. I think it's really helpful and insightful. He says, If they, the angels, looked on us and saw us calling ourselves the church of God, but completely overthrowing God's created order, they will be impacted by that as well. He goes on to say, We have to remember that some of them, the angels with Satan, already tried to overthrow God's created order, and it didn't go well. When you think about that, that's mind-blowing. Our worship has cosmic implications, so we should conduct ourselves in a reverent way. So the head covering for women in worship in Corinth in the first century was their way of bringing the order that the gospel restores to the disorder of gender relations. Say it again. Head covering for women in, in worship in Corinth in the first century it was their way of bringing the order that the gospel restores to the disorder of gender relations. And all that for the glory of the Trinity, who, Trinity, exercises submission and authority, a diversity amidst a unity. Head coverings mattered for them because it was, a, it was timeless truth, the character of God, culturally applied. So what does that mean for us today? First, I would say wrestle with hard texts like this one. Don't just ignore them or throw them out because they're not easily understood. Wrestle with them. God's word is sufficient in every way, and sometimes it takes work, but um, we'll be blessed when we understand from hard passages what is being taught. And, then, and I would also say affirm and live out God's good plan for gender, starting in the family. Two simple but cultural applications for us would be um, women taking the man's last name and then wearing, wearing a, wedding, a wedding band. Um, there are other pro- things probably in our context or for our culture, um, but those are two that stand out immediately. But we have to ask the question, in our context, are we submitting to the order of God, Christ, husband, wife in a way that honors God? So we've seen that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bring restoration, order, and glory through authority and submission and through timeless truth culturally expressed. And now we see that our Trinitarian God brings restoration, order, and glory through gender distinctions. Verses 11 through 16 say, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to, to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul wants to be clear that he agrees with what the Bible overwhelmingly affirms, that man and woman, though given different roles, are equal in value and worth. Both are made in the image of God. 
This equality in worth is shown through how the genders are not independent of one another. If there never would have been man, there would be no woman, since woman was created from man. Similarly, since all men after Adam are born of woman, man is dependent upon woman. God even affirms the value of women through his son Jesus being born of a woman. As Paul affirms that dignity of both genders, as he affirms that, he also tells us that they aren't the same, that a distinction between them is important. He's effectively saying in verse 14, men should look like men and be masculine according to the norms of masculinity in each culture. And the same for women. In the culture of Corinth, masculinity was apparently associated with short hair. Femininity was apparently associated with long hair. This seems consistent with most cultures today, including our culture. I don't know if we can go from this passage as far as to say that these verses disallow long hair for men or short hair for women, but he's using hair to teach a principle. Men should be masculine and women should be feminine. This doesn't mean men have to be weightlifting, tobacco chewing, pickup driving, gun shooting, football watching, do everything yourself, macho men, or whatever a macho man is in our culture, which by the way, none of those, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. They're great. But that's not what biblical masculinity is. Mostly it means to embody the strength of God in an authentic way. Embody the strength of God in an authentic way. Um, I've heard the ac- acronym REAL used for masculinity to, uh, before, which R would be reject passivity, A, accept responsibility, L, lead courageously, E, expect the greater reward. I think that's helpful. Similarly, women should embody femininity, not our culture's view, whatever that may be. A guess would be, I don't know, makeup, hills, perfect figure, fashionable, independent, Um, I guess that's our culture's view. But biblical femininity is about embodying the the tender, nurturing care of God in an authentic way. Being, um, having a gentle spirit, being wise. I think it's very interesting that in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is embodied as female, is personified as female. I think that's insightful. I know my wife is often much wiser than I. Um, also submissiveness and, and hardworking. In one of C.S. Lewis's essays, he addressed whether women should be priests in the Anglican church. He was an Anglican. It's a deeply insightful essay, and I want to read a small portion of it slowly, uh, listen carefully. He wrote, One of the ends for which sex or gender was created was to symbolize to us the hidden things of God, i.e. Trinity, right? One of the functions of human marriage is to express the nature of the union between Christ and the church. We have no authority to take the living and semitive figures which God has painted on the canvas of our nature and shift them about as if they were mere geometrical figures. He goes on to say, Within the church, we are dealing with male and female, not merely as facts of nature, but as the live and awful, awful is in awe-inspiring, we're dealing with them not merely as facts of nature, but as the live and awful shadows of realities utterly beyond our control, 
and largely beyond our direct knowledge. What he's saying is that our masculinity or femininity are not just body issues, they're soul issues. A person can change their body, but they can't change their soul. When a person is created in the image of God, that image is distinctly male or distinctly female. Transgenderism, then, is so serious because it is an assault on the very image of God, an assault on the order of the Trinity. And I think it is fueled by lies from the evil one, from Satan. An attack on the image of God is an attack on God. Gender is a hugely important issue to our day. We know that. So how do we respond to transgenderism? Just a few brief suggestions. Um, First, with sensitivity, love, and compassion, remember that we are dealing with a person of incredible dignity and worth because they are made in the image of God. A person that has been deeply affected by the corruption of the world and their own sin nature. Second, we respond in humility, acknowledging our own brokenness. It may be different than, than somebody else's brokenness, but we each have our own brokenness, and we need to be familiar with our own brokenness. None of us are, are, are what we should be. We are to lovingly affirm what the Bible teaches and that freedom can be found in Christ. Third, we need to be very proactive with our own children and youth both within our families and within our church. Masculinity and femininity are modeled and taught through relationship and in the family through appropriate affection and intimacy. Both little girls and little boys were made to need both mommies and daddies, both feminine influence and masculine influence. And although family holds the primary responsibility, we also corporately share responsibility as a church. I do have influence through relationship and example on young people of our church that aren't my own kids, and so do you if you are involved here. Again, this is part of the reason why Sunday School, Awana, and youth group are so important. We disciple young ones that bear the image of God. All those faces, those beautiful faces that we saw on the screen earlier in the service, little ones, no less than we are in the image of God. So they are in the image of God. And they, like us, are made new through the gospel, the saving message of Jesus' perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. We want them to bear God's image as male or female to his glory. The expansion of God's kingdom on earth needs men who will, who will be biblically masculine men. Needs women who are biblically feminine. Gender is a beautiful, glorious expression of the diversity found in the Trinity. We're so different, yet we're both made in the image of God, a diversity amidst a unity. Gender matters because we bear the image of the Trinity to a watching world that so desperately needs to see and to know God. So, as we've worked our way through the passage, In light of the whole of Scripture, we've seen that as image bearers of God that are being renewed by the gospel, we're to bring order to our disordered world. 1 Corinthians 11 shows us that we do that through biblical authority and submission, through timeless truth culturally applied, and embracing gender distinctions. Through these means, the triune God, the Trinity, is bringing restoration, order, and glory. 
rather than remove the image of God from us and start over in some other way, God chose to renew us, to make us new through Christ. God's image upon us that has become corrupted becomes restored through our being conformed to the image of Christ. The three-in-one God who said in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, says in Revelation 21.5, behold, I am making all things new. And what he will bring and what he will bring to its full completion, he's already begun through the work of Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Romans 8.29 and 30 tell us that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Our salvation is a work of the Trinity, all, all three parts working together. The Father appoints, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies. Or put another way, through a Christian rapper, the Father chooses them, the Son gets bruised for them, the Spirit renews them. The work of the Trinity in salvation is a glorious work that very much includes our gender roles and distinctions. Our passage today has been difficult or thorny, you might say. The Trinity is a difficult doctrine, somewhat difficult to understand. The beauty and glory of the rose, however, is worth it for the thorns. Let's embrace our Trinitarian God in gathered worship that is ordered to his glory, and let's embrace our Trinitarian God in worship in all of life through authority and submission, truth culturally applied, and embracing gender distinctions that are ordered to his glory. Let's pray. At the end of the second letter to the Corinthians, um, Paul ends with one of the most clear expressions of the Trinity that we have in Scripture. He says this, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's my prayer for us, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be with us as we go out into the world and through the Spirit's work, image God in the world, his renewing work in us, to a world that desperately needs to see the image of God. So with that, you are sent. Go in peace.